Today's episode is brought to you by Freshly. We all have busy lives, and unfortunately, there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything done. Freshly is the easiest and most convenient way to eat healthy, no matter what life throws your way. Freshly's team of chefs create all-natural, gluten-free dinners and deliver them fresh to your door. So even if you get stuck at work late, you can still come home to a delicious dinner cooked by a chef. No more worrying about having to figure out what's for dinner, and especially, no mess to clean up after. The best part about Freshly is the number of comfort meals they currently have that are also super healthy, like the buffalo chicken or the chicken parm. Every single meal comes with a detailed and easy-to-read overview of each ingredient featured in the meal. And right now, you can check out this week's menu, created by Freshly Chefs, and get $25 off your first order of six chef-cooked dinners, plus free shipping by going to Freshly.com upsell. You'll feel so relieved to come home to a chef-cooked meal every night with Freshly. That is Freshly.com upsell for $25 off your first order. Order today to see what life is like when you no longer have to think about dinner. Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I am joined today, as always, by Daniel Janine. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing really well. Today, we're talking to Dan Barber, Chef Dan Barber of Blue Hill, Blue Hill Stone Barns, and Blue Hill in Washington Square Park, a ridiculously famous chef. He is known almost as much for his cooking prowess as he is for his activism and his public speaking and TED Talks, his advocacy. 2016 Eater's Most Essential Restaurant in America, mm-hmm. Blue Hill Stone Barns. And Dan Barber is starting a seed company. He is. He's teamed up with a bunch of seed breeders mm-hmm. uh, to basically breed seeds for flavor instead of for, I don't know, uniformity, ability to ship, scale, things like that. Um, but unlike Chefs who are working with heirloom seeds, Dan's big focus is making sure the seeds work at scale. He is trying to develop seeds that are better than any of the seeds we have out and eventually maybe even get them into Walmart. Yeah, so I, I don't really want to use the D word, but he is trying to disrupt the, ah, <laughs> this industry. Disruption. And if anyone can do it, uh, I guess Dan, Bar- Dan Barber can. So, so we're going to let him talk about it. Yeah, he's going to do a better job than we are. Yep. But before we get into that conversation, uh, we want to ask you to please rate and subscribe to the show. Mm-hmm. Write us emails if you have any questions or thoughts, any shows you would like us to put on in the future, uh, upsell at year.com. And please share it on Facebook, tweet about it, all those things. Tell a friend. Tell them all. And now Chef Dan Barber. So tell us about your new company. So I'm starting a seed company that is based on uh, developing new varieties of vegetables, uh, eventually grains, that are focused on flavor. Uh, that's the short of it. Um, it's, it's vegetables that just have jaw-dropping, delicious flavor. That's about a chef talking to a breeder uh, who is writing the original recipe for this stuff. So it's, it's something that I've been lucky enough to be involved in for the last 10 years, just really... Mm-hmm. Off the cuff and 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 by chance and and been meeting breeders along the way that are really fascinating and and developing these conversations and then eventually trialing varieties that they're interested in uh, and focusing on the flavor potential of them, which is something that they don't often get asked to do. But I was going to say because people who have been to your restaurants either in Manhattan or a little farther north. They've had your varieties of seeds, your varieties of vegetables for some time. But how is this different now? Well, we're formalizing it. 
that just means money, money, money. <laughs> We're selling it. <laughs> well, selling. before yeah. we talk about that, can you tell us about some of the seeds or grains or whatever that you've done in the restaurant? Like you have the yeah. Well, we, this all started with a conversation like ten years ago with a with a squash breeder named Michael Mazurk, who's launching the company with me, uh, and and he came for dinner. Uh, and just at the end of the day, I found him really interesting. Like during the dinner, he was asking all sorts of questions. It reminded me of a chef. And, I, and at that point, what did I know from Breed? Actually, here's what I knew of Breed. I brought him in the kitchen, and we were looking at a cook who was preparing a butternut squash. And I, and I was just like, if you're such a great breeder, why don't you make a butternut squash taste good? Because butternut squash is just filled with water. And like <laughs> chefs heroically like roast it and add maple syrup. And I do everything to make the thing taste good. And what he said to me was like, I'll never forget. He turned to me, he was like super serious. And he was just like, you know, in all my years of breeding, no one has ever asked me to select for flavor. And that's when I just said, first I was like, what the, who the hell are you talking to? <laughs> but that was sort of like lights out. It was a before and after moment because it was just like, that's, that's not only tragic, it's also like such an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because here was a guy who was totally a foodie. I'm totally vested in mm-hmm. all the things that we, we spend our lives obsessing over. But who is he talking to? He's talking to the Walmarts of the world. And what do they want? You know, they want uniformity and they mm-hmm. want shelf life and they want yield, 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 yield. And those are the those are the determining factors. The problem with those being the determining factors is that by definition you're selecting against flavor. It just that's the way it works. And to make flavor a priority, you need a chef at the table. So the company is being started by me because we're formalizing what we've done. Yes, I said that, but the future is actually to activate all these chefs to have conversations around the country. You know, one of the great things about this country is this land-grant university system, which is, a, which is a system of colleges that's in every state. Some states have two. And it was built in the late 1800s to, to actually, this is a modern interpretation of what it was built for. It's like to adapt to local cultures and local needs and local ecologies and to have breeders on hand who were adapting seeds to meet those needs. But this whole system's fallen apart in the last time, like everything else in the food system, just totally operating the breach. And our tax dollars are paying for it. That's why I said so fascinating. These are public plant breeds, really in the public trust. And what, what we hope to do is activate chefs and their particular interests with local breeders who also have particular interests all around the rubric of flavor. So you talked to Michael and inspired him to breed you basically a, a more delicious squash. And then did yeah, it cascade I from there? Jokingly, you have yeah. like a number yeah. now. That yeah. You've well, made. well now. So then, then you know, fast forward ten years, and there's a thing called the Honey Nut, which is coast to coast. And from what I just heard, Blue Apron is planning for two million pounds to be harvested wow. next year. And it's in, you know, it's in Trader Joe's. It's going to to, to um, Whole Foods. I mean, it's it's crazy this thing that took off, and it took off because in part because I was talking about so chefs started talking about it and started using it, just tasted it like you don't I mean you don't add you add a little, like a little salt mm. and that's it I mean really it's one of those things just chefs love because it makes chefs look like look like better chefs mm-hmm. so it's totally vested in that and then it just it took off and like in a matter of just a few years it went from zero to a couple of farmers of the farmer's market growing it at Union Square to tons of chefs asking for it and then big C companies distributorship and all of a sudden it's I got I got a uh, email from someone in North Dakota. It's at a supermarket in Fargo, North Dakota. It's crazy the way that works. And that was all lifted off because chefs got excited about it and people tasted it. The most interesting part of that is that right when it, when he got going, Michael, with this squash, this shrunken butternut squash, later called a honey nut, he took it to the big agribusiness people. He said, this like, this flavor, chefs are going crazy over it. And, and the, dude, the dude said, 
something I'll, I'll also never forget. He was like, immediately like looked at it. He's like, oh no, we don't have a skew to fit that. I mean, we don't have the box <laughs> configuration that fits that definition of a squash. And therefore it won't compute. We don't, the logarithm won't work. It won't distribute, it won't store. We can't put it into our system. And the next guy said, well, that's impossible. A, a shrunken butternut squash that's 60% smaller and 10 or 20% more in price, no one would ever buy that, if, you know, comparing apples to apples. Both were exactly wrong. And breeders like, like Michael, they work with who's usually funding their research? Because you said they're not well, breeding for flavor. Good, who are they talking it's a good, to? Yeah, they're talking to the to the big agribusness people of the world. You know, who, hmm. who who want the kinds of things that you know supposedly everyone in America wants, which is, you know, low low prices, uh, and and stuff that's uniform, exactly the same size. And when you breed for that, you're you really are by definition breeding against the kinds of things that we advocate for. The other part of this is that like. It's just these conversations I'm coming off of. So in my head is like, my head is just, I've been talking to chefs like crazy across the country. And the, the conversations are just crazy interesting. It's because you're talking to like, I was just talking to Mashama down in Georgia. I was talking to uh, a guy from Arkansas today, Matt. I was talking, I was also talking to Thomas Kelly. I met with Jean George the other day. But, but, and I'm thinking in all these conversations, you know, we're going we're to be talking about specific flavors. Like, what can you get out of a beet? And you know, that, cause that's what got me into this. And I was like, hey, but actually, all the conversations have been outward facing. You know, like they've been about, well, there's, you know, some real climate changes going on down south. Like we've got some diseases that we can't grow some of our favorite stuff. Um, uh, Michelle was talking about trying to repatriate Edna Lewis's larder. The seeds aren't productive enough for farmers to be incentivized to it. Can we update the seeds? Uh, you know, uh, a spike in Baltimore was talking about a potato. He wants a great taste of potato. He really wants a potato that'll last until this time of year in storage because mm -hmm. he's got great farmers locally and he wants a storage potato to last on that. So I'm talking to the potato breeds, like, of course we could breed for that. <laughs> that's storage, but no, nobody asks to breed for right. a storage potato because that's not in the vernacular. You know, when no one's, no one's asking for that in the food system. So that's where it seems like chefs have a real opportunity to, to become, with, with their agency, to, to promote change through flavor. So about the honey nut was that was that your like the the first great hit? Are you do yeah, you was, get Spotify streaming? Yeah, off yeah I've streaming become rights? very famous off of honey nut, and I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> but just, I mean nothing. I literally. But you're asking if he gets a cut. Of it? Get a do piece I get a of cut? Oh, yeah, oh, you're talking about economically. No, yeah, yeah, I, no. the money. Yeah, the money. The money, 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 money. money. <laughs> no, I um uh I get nothing. No, and 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 the university mm -hmm. gets okay, ten percent of it. Gets yeah. yeah, yeah, the, the university. Oh, okay. which is the way it should. That's how the the land grant university system works. I mean, it's it's ten percent of the sales. It's not a lot, but it's it's something, and it goes to breeding programs. So it's important. It's definitely important. The the point is, are we are we breeding the next generation of vegetables and grains that are meeting the demands of this emerging food food is foodie mm -hmm. population, which is which is taking over and very exciting. And if if we we talked about this, we've been talking about this for twenty years, but chefs and 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 farmers and the farm to table movement and activating that. But in many ways, and of course, I've been talking about that too. And, you know, I'm 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 a chef with with a table in the middle of a farm, so I've got a skin <laughs> in the game. But but in many ways, what I've learned is that you're the cake's pretty much baked when the farmer has the seed, and if the seed the seed's the blueprint, and there's only so much you can do if the genetics aren't there. So what's happened is. You know, you, you could have the best soil, the best rotations, the best climate in the world, the most brilliant farmer. If you don't have the genetics and the seed, forget it. You're not expressing it. 
And, and that's the problem with the whole system now is that over here you have the, the Dan Barbers of the world and the, the high-end chefs talking about old seeds because that's where the flavor is. The yield's ridiculous. If it rains too hard, your crop's lost and you become, by virtue of that, just the most, you're the 1%. Mm -hmm. And then over here, on the other end, you've got the Monsanto maniacs. You know, who are advocating for whatever, you know, feeding the world or whatever. But there's an in-between, which is, I think, recognizing what's emerging, which is this food culture, recognizing the regionality of the food culture, which is huge. See, companies don't, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about the American food system. Actually, it's a very, as you guys know, regional, distinct. That's what Eater is so great at exploring and advocating for, all these different tastes. Mm -hmm. uh, and can we have a seed breeding pop program that's recognizing that and advancing it. That's a very exciting food And they can scale these And they can scale it. And that's seeds. the key. And that goes back to that honey nut squash example. The reason it took off wasn't because I was advocating or the other chefs. It has something to do with giving a little bit of lift. But at the end of the day, it was farmers saw that this is scalable. This is like you can grow this and make money. Mm -hmm. It's a huge thing. It had great disease resistance. It's it has good yield, and and the thing you know does well for a farmer. That's not true of most of the stuff that chefs talk about, which is old seeds. Right. So, you need something yeah. that's delicious that you right. can also grow all right. over, exactly. and that you can ship all over. Exactly. And, and that's a conversation between starting with a chef. I still believe it because we curate this stuff every night, and we should be at the table. But ultimately, it's the hands of the breeder to say. What can we select here that allows this to really sing for a farmer? Because otherwise, it isn't going to go anywhere. How does the actual breeding of the seed work? Uh, so there's different ways to, to create seeds. A very popular one is to take two exceptional parents, <laughs> put them together to create a baby. That's called the hybrid seed. It's pretty, pretty easy. I mean, our great-great-grandparents were doing that. Everyone's been doing that right. since mm -hmm. forever. But the, the, the point now is that in the last 10 or 15 years— there has been appropriate technology. When I say appropriate technology, I'm not talking about genetic modification. I'm, I'm talking about computer programs. The, for example, the genome of the squash has been mapped. That allows the breeders to look at how things are gonna play out several generations down the line. So what would have taken your grandparents a lifetime to create, no offense to your grandparents, we can do in a couple of years, or breeders can do in a couple of years based on that technology. That's, that's all in service of a very holistic, and an old world system is just it's just modernizing it in a way. So you're that's using advanced technology to pick out the right squashes yes, to yes. put together. But you have to be directed. What's mm -hmm. the right squash? Right. Who, what is the right squash? That's the question. Mm -hmm. What is the right squash? Well, to the to the food conglomerates, it's breeding for water weight because that's where you make the money, shelf life, and and stability, and a lot of yield for the farmer. For chefs, there's other interests, and we need a chef at the table. That's that's the company saying. So. I hope we can uh, advocate for this in a, in a, in a, in a, I think a very exciting way. Again, I think it's, it's this regional idea. As I talk to these chefs, you know, you fly between New York and San Francisco. Well, you guys don't, but <laughs> so much of the media flies between New York, San Francisco, LA or whatever. And these food cultures in the Midwest are just so excited. I was just in Fargo, Fargo, North Dakota. I mean, it's like it, the, 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 the energy and passion for good food. It's nuts. And they just forget about it. And well, but who's breeding for who is selecting for that ecology? I mean, literally, what breeders sitting down saying, I'm going to target, you know, Fargo. <laughs> like, no. And but, to, to get back to the breeding point, just so our listeners can understand, it's not, you mentioned this to me as a look 
don't touch approach. And so that is how, that's the different than I said that. Yeah. Like you're great line. What was I talking about? (laughs) When you were trying to explain how it wasn't GMO. Yeah. Like you are watching for certain, you're using Uh, the technology to see what, which ones to select and what features to select, but you're not, but you're not going into a lab and injecting. Right. So can you explain why you wouldn't, wouldn't do that? Well, I'll just say it as simply as I understand it because I'm, I'm not a breeder. I'm not Mm -hmm. a scientist. This is my, Ridiculously, I also failed seventh grade biology. So here's my absolute straightforward. It's like the the difference between what good, uh, clean breeding work is and what genetic modification is, is is that in genetic modification, you are taking a foreign gene, foreign material from somewhere else and injecting it into a plant, which is to say that in nature, that would never happen, could not happen. Could our squash, our honey nut squash, have developed in nature, yeah, it could have. A bird and or a bee could have taken the mm-hmm. pollen, da, 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 and then oh, eventually it could have been there. And that's the line taken for, a thousand for years. you and your team. <laughs> right. It's like, if it yeah. could happen in nature, then we'll... Yeah. yeah, then it feels right. And now, then we're doing what everyone's been doing since domestication of, of plants, which is you see something, you taste it, and you keep selecting for that trait. We're doing it now in speeded up time, which I think is appropriate and makes sense and actually is very exciting. But the genetic modification is to say, I like a gene from a pig's heart because it has mm-hmm. a certain health benefit for us. Let's implant that and we can get a boost of omega-3s or whatever the hell they're saying. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's weird, weird stuff. Anyway, I, you know, I don't want, actually shouldn't be saying it's weird. It's like it's not producing anything delicious to eat. Right. And if that's the case, then I'm not interested. I, there hasn't been one GMO crop that's been jaw-droppingly delicious. And if, if that's the case, then what is this for? Is that because there's no chefs involved, though? Well, maybe. If there's a company you know of starting with genetically modified yeah, like food rival, and chefs, I might, we might be in trouble. But mm-hmm. I don't think chefs are drawn to that because ultimately it's about dumbing food down because you are looking for that scale and that yield. And that one size fits all. You want a seed that works well here in the Hudson Valley. You also want that same seed to work well in North Dakota and in Pacific Northwest and in Southern California and in Texas and in Mexico and increasingly in China mm-hmm. and Southeast Asia. It's like, what? That's not a way to breed a seed. Right. Um, so actually, that is the way seeds are being bred, and that's why they're dumbed down. So the, this approach is, turns it all on its head. It's to say, actually, there's this emerging regional context for flavor, and we should explore that and celebrate it. And I don't know what the business model for that is. I, this isn't, I'm not going in here to like make a gazillion dollars. It's like, I understand why, with all the investment that goes into seed work, why why seed breeders are not looking to Fargo, North Dakota mm-hmm. to launch. But but there's exciting chefs everywhere there and pockets of regional expression that aren't being expressed in the seed. So that, that's where we're headed with this. But it's a union of chefs for flavor. It's How not, are the yeah. chefs going to work with you? Well, we're figuring that out as we go along because I think it, it it just depends on where the chef is. You know, what's the ecological expression that that is so interesting to a chef? You know, is it really hot, dry weather? And is there, like I was talking to a chef in Australia, Dan Hunter, uh, who was talking to me about some varieties that he's excited about, but this lack of rainfall is really affecting his ability to plant things that he was used to growing. And so, well, okay, can you breed stuff for water tolerance for low, for low water needs? Yes, you can. You can. You just need to be asking. And and so all so it just I, how we work with these chefs depends on the condition and and the interest of the chef and and we've just seen all of the map. What I'm what I'm struck by is how outward facing it is. It, while I'm saying this whole company's about flavor and it is, it's also about climate. The, yeah, yeah, it's about everything that mm-hmm. that is attached to creating this great flavor. That's you know. 
good way to go. So how are, how are you going to make, the company I assume is going to make money off the chef in Fargo though, right? Well, you know, it's a good question and I haven't gotten that far with it. I think if the, if the chef is going to promote a seed that ends up working, so we're going we're gonna to sponsor the relationship with the breeder and the conversations on the work, right? We've got to do that. This is quite a bit of money. And then what happens? We, so we get that conversation oh, going cool. and we get a seed, right? And this is long-term. Right. Let's just say that were to happen. Then what happens? Well, a lot of it's going to go back to the plant breeder because that's where it belongs. And remember, the, the spirit of this company is to shine a light on the plant breeder. But does the chef get involved financially? Yeah, we have to figure out a way to do that. And this down the road. But yeah, for sure. I, I want to incentivize the chef to be, because those are the chefs that are going to be most interested and work on it in an extraordinarily passionate way. I can already see that developing. So we got to create a mechanism to do that. And we will. So you let them assist in, in the development of the seed. And if yes. it works in the area and it takes off, then maybe then we'll eventually s- we'll see. Yeah, definitely. But for the initial, all the uh, revenue, f- Walmart's from, all over Fargo. Yeah, well, well, that's the North Star, <laughs> is to get it into Walmart. I might be down on Walmart for now, but the actual the North Star is to get it in there. Like I don't, I, I we're not. I don't want to hide. The, I don't want this to be in the Cathedral of Blue Hill. It's crazy. Yeah, wherever people are shopping, you yep. want these vegetables at everyone's dinner table. That's that's the point. And the idea is that you you don't need uh, uh, the 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 restaurant to be the place, the sanctuary for flavor. You, it democratizes flavor, democratizes seed. It's very possible. It's just a question of of having the right people at the table who are thinking along these lines. And that's that's the spirit of the company. But but in answer to your question. All the proceeds from the company right now are going to breeders because that's where it belongs, and they have to be incentivized to do the work. Uh, after that, we, we need to figure out a, a, a model that, that, that lives as this thing lives and breathes and changes. If I'm a farmer or an at-home gardener, how do your prices compare to other seeds that I'm buying? We're more expensive. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're more expensive, but you get a lot of squash out of that squash, mm-hmm. and we're we're just tasting. And potentially, them. you could charge more for a squash like the honey nut versus the butternut. But they are because the yield's a little bit lower. We are making sacri. I mean, mm-hmm. again, it's selective for flavor, so there's some things there that are. It's picked ripe, which is another thing. It has a right called a ripeness indicator on this squash. This is a crazy fact. Wait, what? Yeah, I know. I, this is like a total late inning revelry. It's even embarrassing for like you to the say. Like the Coors it. Light. No, when the mountains are blue. Well, so well, okay, kind of. It's it it it. In other words, Michael Missouri, the breeder, bred it so that selected it so that when it is ripe, it turns color to a squash color. What happens Waits with butternut squash? Moment. Yeah, what happens with butternut squash? It turns that color right away when it's green mm, inside. So you never know. So you never know. And in fact, a hundred percent of it is picked green. I mean, wow. not ripe. A hundred percent. I mean, in the big food chain, a hundred percent. No one's going to wait till it's uh, totally ripened on the vine and take the risk of keeping in the field that long. Why would you? No one's paying you to, actually. Yeah. In the same way that no one paid you to wait until tomatoes were red on the vine until there was an, a vine-ripened tomato movement, and that changed the game. But in, in the squash world, that didn't happen. So Michael brilliantly just selected – again, this is not – technology that's way out there. It's just selection for a ripeness indicator, which says to the farmer, this is not ripe yet. You can't pick it because you can't sell it green. And it's a prevention against selling bad tasting squash. And so 90% of the brilliance of this squash is that it's freaking ripe. And we don't eat ripe squash. That's crazy. And squash is considered a superfood. What's that? (laughs) Like, you know, all of this I'm saying, like, I know it, like, I thought I've just learned this along the, the process of breeding and understanding. Well, how hell is this flavor so incredible? And the answer was, well, nobody's picking it right. Now it's everywhere. And the expectation, if we're sitting here in 10 years, it's going to change the squash market. 
because you're not going to go back. You're just you're not going to go back to unripened right, squash. Once you've, you've, had, once you've this. had it, yeah. And give us some money to invest. You know, I was sitting on a panel not long ago with a Monsanto guy. God, he was arrogant, but he, it's just like you know, he was boasting about about spending a million dollars a day on corn research, a million dollars a day oh on corn. And I was just like, give me like a hundred bucks, <laughs> man, and like let's let's give these plant breeders money to to work on this stuff. That's what it is. Really, that's all it is. It's money. And then direction. Who are you talking to? And and that's what we're putting together. So we've, we've got some investors that are like totally angelic. I mean, so far anyway. They they we have the guy who's the whole, the former chairman of Whole Foods, um, Walter Robb, and the former chairman of Cisco Foods, the largest distributor of food in North America. Because they see this demand coming. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. That blew me away. They're like, yeah, this is the problem. Do they see it through squash or through everything? Everything. No, everything. No, no. They're seeing this emerging millennials. I mean, yeah. It's like, we are not set up as a food system to service these people. Does this ever happen? Do you ever get these big Monsanto or Cisco players and they come into the restaurant and they just have these like epiphanies? Does that ever happen? I haven't had many. <laughs> no, you know, I paint them in black and white. I don't know. It's more complicated than that. But a lot of it is us, man. It's like well, it's not much can, different than the bankers. Or... Well, yeah, that's right. But you can say, okay, they're just after money. I mean, I do think that the people I've met on the on the big food chain, like they're not just like evil. Like I want to serve you squash that's unripe and you're unhealthy. Right? It's like it's like it's us. It's the right. problem is us. Yeah, we're buying like, it. We're, yeah, we're feeding into it and we're saying what we want. And we're voting with our dollars every day at the supermarkets and wherever else we shop. And so. You know, it seems to me like one way to change it is to get the chef's voice advocating for this because it's quite powerful. And it, again, it's it's this selfish drive for for flavor that makes us look like better chefs. I think that's a key key component of this. Yeah, it makes your job easier if you're a chef. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What am I doing? I mean, when I serve that honey nut squash, it's like literally I take it out to the dining room <laughs> in the pot because I right. we, we we roast it, we take a fork, we scrape it out, zoop like this, and we're done. And then we take the pot out to the dining room and we just to show them that we are not adding anything and they stick their spoon and that's a course. Well, that's always the joke <laughs> about that? San Francisco chefs is they have yeah, such good shopping. produce yeah, and they just, shopping. yeah, it's shopping. Yeah, yeah, well, it's a little bit like that, but it's it's a deeper shopping it's experience because it goes it's to the seed. as deep as it can go. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about some of the seeds that you're launching with? Yeah, so we're, we're launching with... Um, with a um, with a, the updated version of the squash that we've been talking about <laughs> the last fifteen minutes, uh, this is the next generation. Right now, it's called eight nine eight. It's a trial number. So, you say that when you bring them out at the restaurant, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of them are trials. This one is the trial for the next advance on the honey nut. It has better yield. It can store longer. I think it's better. But that's a hard. That's a. That's. You know, I'm supposed to undersell and overdeliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm overselling, but but not really. It's really fantastic, and I'm totally excited to to release it. So that's one. We have a beet. Yeah, the a, beet one is interesting. From a brilliant beet, beet breeder in in Wisconsin, this guy Erwin Goldman. Uh, he's a genius, and he he basically said I was just on the phone with him like eight years ago, and I was complaining about people saying they don't like beets. You know, we have no menus at Stone Barn, so we the captain is always talking to the table before the order goes in. There's an empty ticket, and we create the the menu for the table. It's a different menu for each table. But at this time of year, we you know, we have three thousand pounds of storage beets, so we need to put beets on your menu. But it's always like table prefers not that beets in the menu. It just drives me nuts. And I was on the phone with him eight years ago, and I was like, "This is crazy." He's like, "You know, I've identified the, the this cluster of compounds that actually makes you n not like beets. It's called geosmin." And in some varieties, the beets are quite high, uh, and some people are more sensitive to it. Children are especially sensitive. Mm. I don't know. When I was a child, I used to choke down beets because I was forced to eat beets. <laughs> Same. Yeah, right. I mean, a lot of people had that experience. And so he's like, you know, I could 
select against Yosemite. I was like, so simple. <laughs> and I was like, it was selected against you. I was like, yeah. I was like, okay. And so he did. And so now we went through all these trials and it's called, it's now called the Badger Flame Beet. And we serve it at the restaurant completely raw, naked. We, we, is we, it it's sweeter? It's so sweet. It is so sweet. It's got a little, I mean, it's definitely got a taste of beet. Actually, a version that he had a couple years ago dialed the Geosman so low, it stopped tasting like a beet. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> like it's, yeah, you need a little bit of it. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's it's awesome. Awesome. And we, we slice it raw. We put a little salt on it. And it's like, yeah, it's another one of those unplugged and just here it is. But it's crazy. It's like, what's possible? So now you could say, okay, that's just a chef, you know, in like fooling around, having fun. What the hell's the point of doing all this work on a, but is it when you start to think about like children who reject beets, like now my kids, I give them, like I give them a carrot, I give them a beet and they eat it like a carrot. It's sort of a gateway drug into beets. Yeah, and do. we should be eating more beets in this country. Not just for us, because they're super healthy and tasty and chefs love them. In cold climates, they're the best storage crop ever. Mm -hmm. And they're a great crop for farmers. So it's, it has larger implications as you do out in these concentric circles, but it, it takes a minute. If you start with the flavor, I think it leads to all these other possibilities. And maybe there's a beet in every kid's lunchbox, you know, uh, replacing the carrot. It's a heck of a lot more, more nutritious. Actually, I don't know. Anyway, that's 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 exciting to me, and 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 we have a potato. Uh, the potato breeder is obsessed with like removing the russet Idaho russet from the dinner table. It's just like he's a man on a mission. Uh, actually, he he's the guy who breeds Lay's potato chips, so he's quite famous as a chipper wow. potato. But he he wants. But to he do doesn't it. like the russet. He doesn't like the russet, and so he's come up with a potato that was a trial number one fifty for many years, and uh, now it is called Upstate Abundance. And we're, we're releasing that at like, I, I love it. It's an incredible potato that you just boil it with salt. You don't add butter hmm. and, or, or anything, bacon bits and that shit. It's just like, it's on its own. It's really extraordinary. It's a great storage potato. And it's called Upstate Abundance, interestingly, because he wanted to shine a light on upstate, upstate eaters. He thinks they get passed over in the same way I was talking about. People get upstate farmer. New York eaters. Upstate New York, uh -huh. yeah. And he called it abundance because it's so abundant. So a farmer actually makes makes great return growing it. So it's a uh, disease more disease resistant than yeah, other potatoes. Yeah, and it's more productive. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. So a lot of these guys that are working for the company are also like working for Lay's. They're not working for the company. They're working for the university. They're public plant breeders. They work for you and me. So for, he you know, like pays right. for their research, but they're not employees. Yeah, I, we we sponsor research, you know, and and we get the we get our voices heard. It's sort of like you give money to a politician to get five minutes with him or her, right, right. <laughs> kind of thing. It's sort of like that, um, but it's not in a nefarious way. Nor is it a nefarious way on Lay's potato chips no. line either, right? I mean, it's like it all works. It's why it's you know they're there for everyone. And if you believe in potato chips, he's there for you. But we believe in potatoes that, that have such stunning flavor. You don't need to add butter or, sugar or, or cream. It's like, okay, so he's doing that too. And that's to shine a light on that part of the work, which doesn't happen and should happen more. Because again, that's why this whole system was built. Again, there's a Langer University in every state and some too. That's extraordinary. No, no country in the world has what we have. And it built, it built the breadbasket to the world. We're the envy of the world. So why aren't we taking advantage of these conversations? That's what the company has started for, to shine a light on that. Are you going to need to lobby farmers to get them to start growing these seeds? Well, you know, the lobbying of farmers is the advocacy from the chef. Hmm. That's the lobby. 
I don't want a lobby farmers to grow anything. Christ, they're already annoyed at hell. So if you, know, you get enough, yeah. you get enough chefs, chefs on requesting. board yeah. and request. You get enough chefs on board that request that turn this into something that becomes popularized mm-hmm. through their menus, through their social media, through the advocacy. Farmers will grow it. But again, they're only going to grow it if they know that it was bred for a modern context of right. growing. So that's key. It's we we will not release anything that that has low yield, even if the flavors off the charts. Right, like because otherwise, get, otherwise mm-hmm. we'd start an heirloom company. Yeah. That's what heirlooms are. Yeah, like, you it have doesn't all go these anywhere. old seeds, like the Edna Lewis larder yeah, yeah. question, where yeah, you try to grow these seeds and they're not really going to work. Right. So what are you re- what are you repatriating? Mm-hmm. Like you're re- you're trying to get back an old system of agriculture, but that it's totally unrealistic for anyone to make any money, and that's just a really elitist idea. And, and one that no chef wants to be a part of. Right. That's what Thomas Keller said to me. You know, it's so simply. He was like, people come to the restaurant, they have a carrot dish, they go home, they follow my recipe, like, you know, sentence by sentence. They're like perfectly in line with the recipe. Then they come to me the next day and they're just like, I did everything and I couldn't get the flavor that you had. And he says, of course you couldn't. You're not starting with my carrot. Well, yeah. this is fills that void. Why? Why does why does Thomas Keller or Dan Barber or anybody else in between like why do they get to to have flavors that other people don't have? That's you know if you're talking about the heirloom, you know, there's a, there's some kind of justification for you know perpetuating old genetics and keeping those things alive, and that's the role of a high end restaurant. I buy into that. I've said it, so I buy into it. But but the idea that modern breeders can't take those flavors and update them is ridiculous. Are you guys if, – if someone out in San Francisco tries to buy a variety of seed from you and you don't think it will work, are you going to tell them it's not going to work out Yeah, there? we just had that conversation. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we don't – and the, what is the definition of not working? It's a good – it's a, just a question. It's like I don't know. what the, We don't know. We don't know. Right. So um, everything that we are introducing was bred either in upstate New York or in, in Wisconsin for, to start. So how does that translate to like southern Texas? I don't know. We're going to give seeds to chefs. We were just on the phone with someone in Austin. We're going to give the seeds to, to them and, and get some feedback. It's a participatory community. So we want the feedback. That's why we're releasing trials. Like we're releasing this new squash as a trial because it's not finished. What's finished? We don't know yet. We, I, in my goal would be every two years with this squash anyway. Another we, version? We, yeah. The iPhone. Like Apple, yeah. If I'm a chef in South Texas, how do I, how do I get this and how do I give you my feedback? Uh, like I, listening to this right now. How do you get your feedback? How do you? Yeah, just call me. Okay, so Dan, just Dan like, at farm. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, right, that's we're going to include st- your email yeah, so people ahead. can email that's you. That's how we're st- that's how we're starting this. Is if you're if you have a farmer that you trust and you'd like to use some of these seasons, give us feedback. Hell, we'd love it. We'd love the culinary feedback, but we'd also love the agronomic feedback. Mm. But what were you just saying before? That was the key point. I missed. I, you, I missed something. What did you say right before that thing? My question. Yeah, what was about? It? Is it ready or is it going to work? Yeah, is it going to work? Uh, if, if 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 they call you and ask for it, and you know it's not going to work so well out there, is, is it your responsibility to tell them? Right, and then my right, and so my answer was fine. But I, I think what I yeah. no what <laughs> Don't I just forget it. yeah no no no. Well, no no what I just left out was just just the the thing of like, you know, of just you know of saying like that's actually what you just described is what heirlooms are, like. The, huh. It's not the chef in San Francisco calling me for an heirloom. They're just ordering an heirloom and they're growing it in San Francisco. That wasn't bred in San Francisco. That wasn't updated in San Francisco. It's probably bred in in France if it was a carrot, and it was probably bred in China or, or you know, if it was a daikon. Like it's like that's it is grown out of place, and that's what we're doing everywhere in this country in in restaurants that have connections with farmers, and that's crazy, and and especially if we all are all sitting here advocating for a different kind of food system. 
you can't advocate for that unless you start it at the seed level with the blueprint for this whole thing. But then so, how can you justify still serving heirloom? I, I can because I can quickly jump to the other side <laughs> <laughs> and like a politician, ride, ride, ride your question and, and try and feel the largest audience possible. Yeah, I piss off a lot of heirloom people now because I spent so much time talking about how important it is to save it. But it is important because, because you are saving genetics. You don't want those things to disappear. Because oh, you might need them for... For mm-hmm. one year, you definitely seeds. will need them. Let's put it that way. You will need them. You may need them because I'm looking for a flavor that, oh, you know, this is from this uh. cookbook, or because the climate changes and you don't have the genetics to meet right. that that drought resistance or whatever it is. So, man, we better save those heirlooms because that's where life is, and that's what the seed banks are about. You know, you talk, you know, or, or people advocate for it. I'm totally into to 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 still growing that stuff out. And I think if you're a high end restaurant and you have a connection to a farmer like we do, you have a responsibility to do a lot, do some of that. And, and maybe a lot of it, because who the hell else is? And and you can sell it through the restaurant, and you can you charge enough that you can withstand you know the slim margins of it. I, I think that's that's and we do do it, but I'm just less interested in advocating for that system as a food system change for the larger audience. That doesn't work. Hmm. What about breads? I know you've played around a lot with breads. Would that yeah. come into play here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, grains is just like t- tricky because it it. Uh, you know, you sell wheat to somebody as a seed, and you also wheat is edible on the seed. Same thing. So I could sell someone a bag of wheat seed. <laughs> <laughs> they could bake bread, and they could also plant the seed. And mm-hmm. then the next year, they could save some of the seed, and they keep going. What do you need the company for? Right. What I've just described is why there are now three companies in, in the United States of America that control 90% of the seed production. Wow. That's what I just described. For grains, that's where it is. You, 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 you become very consolidated. And actually, the three seed companies that control the, the 90% of the seeds are also the three largest chemical companies. So think about that for a second mm-hmm. on the grain level, or on the vegetable level, or any level you want to think about it. We have three companies controlling 90% of new seeds that are developed, and all three are chemical companies. How is that not at cross purposes? If you're a seed company, you're sitting around a table, uh, you know, the boardroom table, and you're like, okay, we're going to develop a new variety. Let me tell you, this variety is so strong, you don't even need any intervention. The <laughs> like, guy no. who's uh, the chemical would be like, uh, hang on a second. You're not going to make any money. So, so it's like you're breeding essentially for a seed that is looking for the intervention because the intervention is where you make the money. That's another reason we're starting the company 100% organic. These are very strong plants. And by the way, strong plants give you strong flavor and one of this and a lot of nutrition same thing so that's the part of organics that i'm i believe really strongly in but on the grain end you know that's that's just a bigger conversation and a bigger investment and um we're excited to do it we di- I, look there's this brilliant breeder out west named steve jones who is upending the way we think about wheat you've written about him and he's he's an he's an awesome breeder and uh I hope to be working with him, with with other breeders around the country with grains, and introduce some some cool varieties. Especially, I'm very interested in in Hollis barley. There's you know, this whole barley craze because of the craft brewers. Um, you know, that's that's ignited the mm-hmm. barley industry. The, cool. You know, I speak to these guys in North Dakota who are breeding barley. It's like that's why I was there. I was looking at the barley. Like ten years ago, there was like. Two percent of their their budget was barley. Today it's forty percent. This over day, just because people believe that oh, craft beer, beer. is better, and I'd be willing to pay a little bit more yep. for taste. Well, that means you need barley because you need the real thing to make the malt. You're not going to do these adjunct malts that the big guys make. You know, with with rice and crappy weed and call it a beer. This is real barley. It's one hundred percent malt, and now you need growers to grow it. And it's upended how the crop rotation is working out there. And that that to me is like. 
that to me is like the because I'm so dystopian about everything when it comes to the future of stuff. I'm very cynical. But when you look at the example of of barley, you, you are taking. Uh, an example of, of what C Company I'm starting and looking at in, in, in its all its possibility. Because, if, again, 10 years ago, there was almost no craft brewery industry to speak of. There was no barley growing. Craft brewery emerges because people decide that flavor in beer is important. And all of a sudden, barley is needed to get that flavor. And that's a very important rotation crop. It's soil amending. It's brilliant for farmers, and they make good money on it. And that came out of nowhere. That wasn't any organized advocacy. That was flavor driving it and driving the food system. So I, I'm thinking of that as a continuation with Hollis Barley because Hollis Barley is so freaking delicious. And we have been selecting against Hollis Barley because the craft brewery industry or any brewery does not want the, the Hollis. They want the Hollis that helps make the wort for the beer. So Hollis Barley is the antiquated thing, but oh my God, the nutrition on it and the beta glucans, which is what you get in oatmeal when you taste that creamy oatmeal. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing in barley. We just bread it out. So we're working with a breeder to put that all back in, to leave it back in. And this is where the old stuff comes in because they have, they're full of beta-glucans, full of flavor, full of nutrition. And I think you know we're, we're headed for a future where we eat a lot more barley, which is a pretty delicious future. Anyway, it's a good example of what's possible if flavor is the, drive, the determining factor. Can you talk about how you're not patenting the seeds that yeah. you're working with? Yeah. I mean, very simply, it's most seeds today, the new seed varieties, are, are throw, seed breeders throw out patents, seed companies throw out patents very quickly, and it protects their R&D investment. Mm -hmm. And uh, from an economic standpoint, as an investor, I would fully support it if I had that silo look at it. On the other hand, you're talking about tying up genetics for life. You're talking about patenting life. And that doesn't sit well. And for a breeder, a breeder once described it to me this way, also a very arrogant breeder who compared himself to Picasso. He said if you know Picasso was painting Guernica and he went up to do a, this stroke here and he got a tap on the shoulder from a lawyer and he said, sorry, that color is no longer available for you to use. That's what patenting is. Mm -hmm. Now, it hasn't been going on for that many years. It's laws that were changed in the 80s and it's very slowly emerging as everyone is throwing up patents. In 20 years, we're sitting here having this conversation, it continues this way, you'll see a huge tie-up of genetic material, which is another way of saying all that stuff that to, to combat issues that are coming, whether it's climate change or taste that we want or whatever, will be removed from our toolbox, removed from our palate. That's scary. That's a scary future, and we haven't talked about that enough because very hard to talk about these issues and very right. hard to write about them mm -hmm. and very hard to talk about them. But can you talk about them through flavor? Because, man, people protect flavor. And, and it, I, it, our patenting uh, thought process, this could be totally wrong, uh, is that once a chef gets behind an idea, a flavor, a, a particular look and feel of a vegetable, that would be hard to, hard to hard copy to steal it. it. Hard to steal it. That's, that's a cultural patent maybe. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing if that theory holds out. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of money put into R&D, and yes, we are not protecting it. Um, and that's very different from any company going right now, most any company going right now. And luckily, the investors who are investing in this believe in that idea, and so we're running with it. Got to change the culture to make that work. So when the when you guys launch, what is it going to look like? Is it is it going to be a website where yeah, you can it's just go based, online yeah. and buy seeds? Yeah, it's just seven seeds. So just again, seven I want to be careful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of seed company. It's not a telephone. I don't know if you've got a seed book before. It's like really interesting to read through those. They're nice, long, thick encyclopedias. Yeah. This is seven seeds. Boom. That's it. And then we're going to build it from there. we got a lot of work to do. Wow. Come, come join the revolution. So <laughs> that people can 
go to, is it row7seeds.com? Yeah, row7seeds.com. And, and if they, they want to email you their yeah. feedback or their dream vegetables, yeah. it's dan. Danablillfarm.com or row7seeds.com. And go, go, go tell us what you want. What's and, your dream and, veggie? Yeah. I think dan the best might way make to, it for you. The best way to st- do it is to start with these seeds because, because that'll give us feedback on the work we've done. And to your point, it's like, how do we know if it's going to grow right. well mm-hmm. in a different place? We don't know. And we'd really want that feedback. And from there, breed for that climate if it's of interest to a chef or or why is it a single chef, a community of chefs? I don't know. It's a community of chefs that, that are pride of place. And this kind of flavor of this beet that I just described to you is actually quite different in the Pacific Northwest, potentially. And what if they breed along that difference? And right. then it becomes so exacerbated, it's all of a sudden the same beet same children grown up in different environments express themselves very differently. We want to we want to explore that and celebrate it. And the only per- people that can do that are chefs and breeders. <laughs> breeders. When you serve it at the restaurant, are you going to explain this? Are you going to explain the seed Everything company? Everything I've done. Every, yeah. You know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to do. <laughs> I don't know. I tend to just sit there and talk all night and people just want to eat. <laughs> like you know what the best way I've learned instead of pontificating about all this patenting, all the stuff I, I tend to get on a high horse about is do the thing with scraping the squash and bringing out the pan, you know, and let him just mm-hmm. un, in, unplugged or whatever. That's great. And then they're like, wow, I didn't know a squash could taste like that. Well, like, let yeah. me tell you. Yeah. And then let me, would you like to invest? <laughs> Here's right a here. catalog. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. We're going to try and do it softly and see where this goes. Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks, I think we guys. got everything. Thank Shit, you man. so much. I wish I had this kind of interview more often. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Eater Upsell with Chef Dan Barber of Blue Hill. If you liked it, It would be really helpful if you could subscribe on the platform of your choice, pass it on to a friend, maybe shoot us an email at upsell at eater.com. We actually reply to every single one. This episode was recorded at the Vox Media Studios in New York City. Our studio team is Paige Bethman, Carrie Clements, Alex Allreich, and Miles Ewell. Special thanks to them. And special thanks to our executive producer, Maureen Genone Fitzgerald. That is all we have for you this week. We will see you on Thursday, March 1st, with our best stories of February 2022.